my name is Steve Calabresi, and I am national co-chairman of the Federal Society. Thank you. I'm very, very pleased to welcome everyone to our fourth and final showcase panel of this conference, which will address the topic of American exceptionalism, the war on terror, and the rule of law in the Islamic world. Since at least the time of the American Revolution, America has been a revolutionary force for democracy and liberty in world affairs. Some have called us a dangerous and revolutionary nation. American ideas about democracy and liberty have played a role over the last 200 years in the French Revolution, the Latin American Wars of Independence, reform efforts in Great Britain, the revolutions of 1848, Woodrow Wilson's war to make the world safe for democracy, the Second World War struggle against the Nazis and fascists, and the Cold War struggle against communist totalitarianism. I think it's fair to say that we Americans have spread our system of government to Western and Eastern Europe, to Latin America, to Japan, and to much of the rest of the world. This panel will consider what role, if any, should America play in spreading democracy and liberty to the Islamic world. Do we have a special responsibility in Iraq or elsewhere to spread our ideas about freedom, self-government, and the rule of law? What are the limits on American foreign policy responsibilities, and to what extent ought we to curtail civil liberties at home while trying to spread them around the world? Should we be an exemplar of liberty and democracy only, or should we actively seek to spread our way of life around the world? Can a country that believes in liberty and democracy ever engage in this kind of aggressive foreign policy? With us to discuss these questions today is a panel of four very distinguished lawyers and scholars, and I will introduce them now in the order in which they will speak. We will hear first from Professor Michael Stokes Paulson, who is University Chair and Professor of Law at University of St. Thomas School of Law in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Professor Paulson has just moved to St. Thomas from the University of Minnesota Law School, where he taught for 16 years. He was a founding member of the Federalist chapter at Yale Law School, and I remember sitting around a table with uh, him and five or six other students at some of our earliest meetings. Our second speaker is Professor Neil K. Katyal, who is Professor of Law at Georgetown University Law School. Professor Katyal recently argued and won Hamdan v. Rumsfeld in the U.S. Supreme Court. Hamdan, as I'm sure you all know, involved a challenge to the policy of military trials at Guantanamo Bay Naval Station in Cuba. Before joining the academy, Professor Katyal served with distinction in the Clinton administration in the Justice Department. We will hear next, third, from uh, Professor Nadine Strassen, who serves as a professor of law at New York Law School and is president of the American Civil Liberties Union, the nation's oldest and largest civil liberties organization. Professor Strassen has twice been named as one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America, and she has been a frequent guest at many, many Federalist Society events over the last 15 years, we are gr very grateful for her participation in those events. She's added a tremendous amount. And then our final speaker will be David Rivkin, who is a partner in the Washington office of Baker and Hostetler. David served in both the Reagan and First Bush administrations, and he also has spoken at many Federalist Society events. 
but we should look forward to a very exciting program. Professor Paulson. Thank you, uh, Steve. If Steve was one of the founding fathers of the Federalist Society, I guess that makes me a founding nephew or something like that. It's great to be here. The topic of the uh, panel today, in part, is American exceptionalism and the war on terror. And I would like to focus on one legal aspect of so-called American exceptionalism in connection with the war on terror, and that is the extent to which the United States is or is not bound by international law in the waging of war as a matter of U.S. constitutional law. Now, Clausewitz famously referred to the fog of war as his image for the inability to think clearly and sensibly once the forces of war have been unleashed and you find yourself in the midst of battle. My title, as you might see on these purple handout sheets, if you got one, is The Fog of International Law, <clears throat> which I think is a useful you know, neo-Clausewitzian image um, for a, a description of the unclarity that pervades so much academic, legal, and political discussion of this animal called international law. My modest goal in the next 10 to 15 minutes is to bring a small amount of clarity uh, to this area from the perspective of the U.S. Constitution uh, by posing three basic but I think very important questions about the status or authority of international law as a matter of United States law. And those questions are, first, what is the legal status of international law under the United States Constitution. Second, what is the status of international bodies' interpretations of international law, including treaties to which the U.S. is a party? To what extent do international bodies' interpretations of international treaties bind the U.S.? And third and finally, what are the powers and duties of U.S. government officials with respect to international law in connection with the war on terror. Now, these are obviously huge and hugely important questions, and I'll only be able to scratch the surface. But my overall proposition, my thesis, is that clear-headed thinking about international law requires the acknowledgement that international law is primarily a political constraint on the exercise of U.S. foreign policy and war power, not a true legal constraint. International law is primarily a policy consideration of international relations, of international politics, so to speak. It may be highly relevant in that sense, but it is largely irrelevant as a matter of U.S. law. While the regime of international law may in some respects regard itself as supreme over the law of individual nations, the U.S. Constitution does not regard international law as supreme over the United States Constitution. And that brings me to the first of these three questions. What is the legal force of international law as a matter of U.S. law? The correct, clear-headed answer, I submit, is that international law is not binding law for the United States and cannot be binding law for the United States except to the extent specifically provided for in the U.S. Constitution, which is very limited and always subject to specific constitutional overrides. Indeed, to put the point more starkly, to the extent that international law 
is thought to yield determinate commands and obligations in conflict with U.S. law. International law is, to precisely that extent, unconstitutional and should not be followed by U.S. officials. And I think this is actually a very straightforward, clear argument from the U.S. Constitution, and that's the perspective from which I'm coming from. Article 6 of the Constitution provides that it is the Constitution and laws made pursuant thereof and federal treaties, and I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second, that constitute the supreme law of the land. If some command of international law is contrary to the supreme law of the land of the United States, if some command of international law is thought to be contrary to the U.S. Constitution or a statute or a treaty as understood by U.S. government officials, it cannot validly be given legal effect as a matter of United States law. That's just the argument of Marbury versus Madison in Federalist Number 78. Reinforcing this, U.S. government officials also under Article 6 swear an oath to uphold U.S. law, the U.S. Constitution and statutes, not international law. Where U.S. law and international law might be thought to conflict, U.S. officials, the President, Congress, the courts, are, I submit, constitutionally required to follow U.S. law and not international law. Any president of the United States who would follow international law in preference to or in opposition to any valid requirement of U.S. law would violate his or her oath of office in the most fundamental of ways. Now, let me apply this to three specific types of international law. The first is treaties. And treaties, of course, are part of the U.S. law of the land. They're specifically recognized under the Supremacy Clause. And there's some mighty important treaties that appear to constrain U.S. war powers and foreign affairs powers. You have the U.N. Charter, which purports to prohibit war, um, except in self-defense or pursuant to U.N. authorization. You have the Geneva Conventions, which you might have heard about in the press sometime over the last five or six years. The Torture Convention and a great many other international treaties to which the U.S. is a party are part of U.S. law under the Supremacy Clause. But there are some important constitutional limitations on the force of these treaties as a matter of U.S. law. First, a treaty may not, obviously, override the Constitution. The Constitution is a superior force to a treaty. It follows that a treaty cannot deprive Congress or the President or the courts of any of their constitutional powers, just as a treaty could not override the First Amendment or Fifth Amendment individual rights of citizens. It follows that a treaty could not override Congress's constitutional power to declare war, a treaty could not require Congress to go to war or forbid Congress from declaring war. And a treaty could not validly override the president's commander in chief constitutional powers, whatever those are properly understood to be. Second limitation on treaties. I think it follows from the superiority of the Constitution to treaties that treaties always may be trumped by subsequent valid constitutional actions of any branch of the federal government. Specifically, a statute can override a treaty. You heard Professor Amar perhaps mention that this morning in his sort of one-way street version of the last-in-time rule. I think it's correct, though, that a later enacted statute always trumps an earlier enacted treaty. But think about the consequences of that. 
It means that if Congress declares war in a circumstance inconsistent with the U.N. Charter or U.N. Treaty, the declaration of war trumps the treaty obligation as a matter of U.S. constitutional law. To make the point concrete, if the best understanding of the authorization for use of military force enacted by Congress on September 18th, 2001, is that it authorizes war-making in circumstances not consistent with the U.N. Charter, it is the 918 authorization that prevails over the U.N. Charter as a matter of U.S. constitutional law. Similarly, if Congress were to pass a Military Commissions Act that contradicted, an interpretation, or, that contradicted or interpreted narrowly uh, the Geneva Conventions or the Torture Convention, such Military Commissions Act would prevail over the obligations of the treaty as a matter of U.S. constitutional law. Third restriction on treaties. Treaties are often not self-executing as a matter of U.S. law and require for their implementation legislation, which further restricts them, and the legislation could narrow the force of the treaty as a matter of U.S. law. And then the fourth limitation on treaties, perhaps the most controversial one, is that the power of treaty interpretation and even treaty termination as regards our foreign relations is probably best understood as an aspect of the executive power of the President of the United States over foreign affairs. Thus, as they concern our foreign relations with other nations, if the, pres the President may decide how to interpret and apply our treaties or whether to terminate them, cancel them, or suspend their operations. Now, all of this tends to drive international law scholars and the international community somewhat bonkers because they look at this and they say, well, this implies that the force of international law, including international treaties, is entirely contingent on the actions looking forward of U.S. government officials. You're saying that international obligations are contingent upon U.S. constitutional powers. The answer to that is yes. That is exactly what the Constitution provides. That does not mean we should shun international commitments or shun international obligations as a matter of policy. It means that we should recognize that their force is largely that of policy. Now, all these same arguments apply to the second form of international law, which is executive agreements. An executive agreement is exactly what the name impl implies. It's an agreement made by the executive that is not in the form of a treaty. It should be understood as having lessened force as U.S. law, though sometimes the Supreme Court has said some things mildly inconsistent with that. But all these same arguments about the limited power of them apply in exactly the same way. An executive agreement may not trump the Constitution. It is always subject to being superseded by a statute that falls within Congress's legislative powers. Uh, executive agreements shouldn't be understood as self-executing as a matter of U.S. domestic law. And the president who makes an executive agreement may rescind an executive agreement. Finally, as to that third category of international law, what is referred to as customary international law, I think the point is all the stronger yet. Customary international law norms that are not embodied in treaties to which the U.S. is a party are, I think, simply not part of the supreme law of the land of the United States. They are not United States law at all. Customary norms are not made by U.S. legislative processes under Article I, treaty processes under Article II, or amendment processes under Article V. Customary international law 
is simply not binding on the United States as a matter of constitutional law. Now, my second big question is, what about international bodies' interpretations of international law, including treaties to which the U.S. is a party? Are international bodies' interpretations of international treaties binding on the U.S.? Now, I think it follows a fortiori from everything I've just said that the answer must be no. As a matter of U.S. constitutional law, the interpretation of U.S. law, including U.S. treaties, cannot be vested in non-U.S. authorities. And here I actually have, surprisingly enough, the Supreme Court on my side. In 2006, in an astonishingly clear-headed opinion, uh, of course by Chief Justice John Roberts, in a case called Sanchez-Lamas v. Oregon, the court held that the International Court of Justice, or the ICJ's, interpretations of the Vienna Convention on Consular Rights that's a treaty to which the U.S. is a party, do not control in the courts of the United States. The interpretations of the ICJ do not control for the USA. Uh, the court specifically rejected an argument made in an amicus brief by so-called ICJ experts that the United States is, quote, obligated to comply with the convention, quote, as interpreted by the ICJ. Chief Justice Roberts said that is inconsistent with Marbury versus Madison. The power to expound U.S. law must be exercised by U.S. authorities. And Sanchez Lama stands importantly for the proposition of U.S. supremacy in the interpretation of U.S. law, including U.S. treaty obligations. Now, this principle is undeniably right, and it would apply in exactly the same way to the president and to Congress. The ICJ's interpretations of U.S. treaties cannot bind the U.S. courts and they cannot constitutionally bind the president or the Congress. My final question then is, what are the powers and duties of U.S. actors with respect to international law? And my simple point here is that while international law does not, of its own force, bind U.S. officials, it can furnish the basis for the exercise of certain constitutional powers. One of them is one that Judge Easterbrook mentioned this morning, and that's the Law of Nations Clause power. Congress has enumerated legislative power to define and punish offenses against the Law of Nations. Congress thus may choose to make certain principles or rules of international law into U.S. law by exercising that legislative power. But Congress must define the offenses. The regime of international law may not dictate to Congress what those offenses will be. Likewise, the president, in the exercise of his executive power over foreign affairs, may validly choose to draw on or to invoke international law principles as a matter of his foreign policy discretion. But the president has that power to adopt, interpret, and apply principles of international law in such manner as he thinks appropriate in exercising his constitutional powers. Two quick final points in conclusion. First, it's something of a misnomer to call this sort of attitude American exceptionalism. All it is is American constitutionalism. America's constitution provides for its constitutional independence from international law, except where specifically provided to the contrary in the constitution. And my second point, is that there's really nothing exceptional about American exceptionalism in this regard. 
Many nations, perhaps most nations, regard their national legal sovereignty as a superior force to the obligations of international law. Now, this is a problem for international law theorists, but it is also the reality. It tends to confirm the fact that international law is really not very much law at all, at least not as we conventionally understand it. It is international relations. It is international politics dressed up in the clothes of law. Let me conclude by paraphrasing Clausewitz once again. Uh, he famously called war the continuation of politics by other means. International law is simply the continuation of international politics by other means. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real honor to be here. And um, uh, I was, I think, tasked really with the point of responding to Professor Paulson today. The truth is I actually agree with much of what he said. And so um, I assume you didn't want me here to just say me too, and you certainly didn't expect that. So uh, so I will, uh, I will talk about some areas of disagreement, but let me maybe uh, center my remarks more generally on the topic of the t panel and maybe talk a little bit about why, as someone uh, like me who believes in the true unitary executive theory of the presidency uh, and someone who actually believes very much in American exceptionalism, uh, I took this Hamdan versus Rumsfeld case uh, to the Supreme Court. So uh, here are my two starting points. The first one is that the, the founders did concentrate pure executive power in a president through the vesting clause and other places. My touchstone for the way I think about the presidency is Federalist 70, that secrecy and dispatch and energy characterize the executive uh, as opposed to the Congress. And the second big starting point I have is that when I look at this Constitution, this document of a few thousand words, I think of it as the greatest weapon uh, the world has ever known with respect to uh, conflicts that we face today and conflicts we face for the past 200 years. It's that vision, the founder's vision, that so moves me when I think about how in just a few thousand words a day think about the solutions to so many of our problems and set out a model that the rest of the world should be emulating. So when I have those two views, now the question is how does that relate to a case like Hamdan in which I am uh, finding myself defending someone who wants to tear down uh, part uh, allegedly wants to tear down some of those uh, some of those great things about America. Well, I think the answer to this is actually fairly simple. I, I think that the administration's position over the past several years, and I certainly expect some disagreement on this point, uh, is in tension with the founders' parameters and one that's deeply in tension with our history. And I can isolate any number of examples, but I'm going to concentrate here on two, uh, the role of international law and then the role of domestic law. First, the role of international law. One of the things you've heard a lot about this uh, over the past couple of days is about citations to foreign law by United States courts. 
Some, as many of you know, Justice Scalia being a, a chief expositor of this view, say that this doesn't really have any role in the American system. Who cares what foreign courts think? And I think you heard Professor Paulson, uh, I think, embrace that with respect to Sanchez Lama and the ICJ opinion uh, recently with respect to the Vienna Convention. Others, like my former boss, Justice Breyer, think that it, that it does have a role. We can cite to foreign law as a uh, as a exemplar of American values, American constitution and the like. I actually come down, uh, with all due respect to my former boss, much more on the side of Justice Scalia on this. I don't think that foreign law has much of a role to play in American life. Now, that's what made the military commission thing so interesting. Because what are these military commissions? Well, President Bush sets them up in 2001 via an executive order. And what law do they apply? They do not apply the law of the United States. They do not apply our criminal law. They do not apply our American military law. They apply international law. That's all that these rules are about. That's all the offenses are about. Uh, so it was an odd thing, actually, that the administration was embracing international law, the laws of war. For those of us that celebrate American democracy and American rulemaking, as Professor Paulson, I think, so nicely illustrated, it's so odd to think about setting up a system that has as its raison d'etre not American law, but the law of other countries. That also happens to be a bit about what the Geneva Convention issues are about that, I, that you heard a moment ago referred to by Professor Paulson. At issue in Hamdan was not the ability for someone to stand up in federal court and seek money damages because some treaty was violated and some private right of action. Rather, the whole argument was simply this. If the administration wants to enforce international law, the laws of war, they have to be bound by the laws of war. And chief among those laws of war are the Geneva Conventions. If we want to apply, if we want to play by domestic rules, that's one thing. But if we want to play by international rules, then obviously the Geneva Conventions are going to be at issue. Now that's what, and that's only, the only thing the Supreme Court said in Hamdan. They certainly did not give anyone the right to come into federal court uh, for any reason and say, hey, my convention rights are being violated. Um, let me spend a minute here responding to Professor Paulson. Um, I don't think that the president can disregard all international law. I do think that he can disregard uh, a, a good amount of it. Uh, that is customary international law. That's international law that is not um, the subject of a treaty or anything like that. It's often vague. It's certainly undemocratic. It's not uh, ratified by the Article 1, Section 7 procedures of our Constitution. Um, and I also think that the president in, a in an emergency situation can act uh, and in, in a way that may be inconsistent with the treaty. So um, if it's uh, September 15th, 2001, and Jack Bauer captures the terrorist who's about to detonate a nuclear device and uh, we need to engage in a little torture to get the answer out of him. Uh, I don't have any problem as a legal matter of saying that the president can disregard a, a, a the Convention on Torture, which is obviously passed with a different circumstances, different circumstances in mind, and authorize that agent to do that. I'm not sure this happens anywhere except Fox TV, but as a matter of just kind of uh, um, as a matter of just pure constitutional values, I think that's fine. 
My problem comes when we're not in the emergency situation. My problem with, uh, with Mike is when we're not in the emergency situation and when we have a duly ratified treaty that otherwise complies with the Constitution. That is, I think Professor Paulson's absolutely right to say if the treaty violates some substantive constitutional principle, then it doesn't have any force anyway. And, and Professor Rosencrantz from my faculty, I think, has, has eloquently argued that, that point in the Harvard Law Review. The question is, uh, so if you, for example, have a treaty that's, that somehow suspends First Amendment rights for American citizens, obviously that treaty is just not valid in and of its own force. The question is, if you have a treaty that otherwise complies with the constitutional parameters, is the president obligated to follow that treaty outside of the emergency situation? And here, and this is my disagreement with Professor Paulson, I think the answer is yes. He may very well be able to unilaterally abrogate it. That's the delicate question the Supreme Court has not decided uh, since the Goldwater versus Carter case. But I don't think that he can just, so, so, you know, sotto voce, uh, without saying so, uh, just disregard it in one instance. So he may, you may, we may want to terminate the treaty, and, and the American Constitution may give him the power to do that. I'm not sure, quite sure it gives him the power to just ignore it in any situation in which it doesn't, in which he finds it not convenient. Um, and I do think that there's an important policy reason for this, and this is a, something that came up a lot in the Hamdan case itself. If we start saying that we can just disregard treaties willy-nilly, other countries are going to do it back to us. And in a world in which we have so many troops on the ground and we are the world's policemen fighting for the American values, this is a very dangerous proposition. This is why so many generals and admirals were on the side of this alleged uh, bin Laden conspirator in the Supreme Court as opposed to the administration, because they said, and I'm thinking of a brief filed by a number of our nation's uh, leading retired generals and admirals, they pointed to 15 countries around the world in which dictators and despots were looking at President Bush's Geneva Convention policies and saying, this justifies our own repressive policies. That's not a world that we want. Instead, it strikes me as a better, is better for a policy perspective for us generally to adhere to our international commitments where we can. The second big example I, I want to refer to is uh, domestic law. Um, I've talked about international law and the tension of the military commissions with that. Now let's talk about domestic law for a second. Um, the Supreme Court 11 years ago in the Loving case said, quote, the founders harbored a deep distrust of military tribunals. And you can go back over American history and find that. We haven't had them really military commissions for over 50 years. And my only point in the case was, look, if we're going to have them, and I don't know whether we need to have them, but if we're going to, it not, should not be the decision of one person in one person's pen. It should be the decision of the United States Congress pursuant to Article 1, Section 7 procedures. I don't have nearly as much of a problem if Congress does the action, so long as, again, it complies with other constitutional commands. But that it strikes me, is the precondition to any sort of uh, any sort of system of justice that's set up. I mean, I have this old fashioned idea about the Constitution, which is that it requires the action of all three branches before the status quo can be changed. That is, Congress must affirmatively pass a law. The president must execute, enforce that law and not pardon people who are convicted under it. And the courts must uphold that law. 
And if any one of those three disagrees, then the status quo remains where it is. That's a very Burkean notion of our Constitution, that it's designed basically to prevent change because change can often be bad. And here, the president's uh, military commission violated that in every respect. It was one person saying, I can do this on my own. The Congress doesn't play any role in this. And indeed, the courts play no role in this. And I'll return to the role of the courts in a moment. But, you know, for example, uh, Congress has said that when we have military trials, you can't kick defendants out of the courtroom. They've said this on the Uniform Code of Military Justice and other places like that for over 50 years. Um, and indeed, Hamdan, right at the beginning of his trial, the voir dire was kicked out. Now, we objected. And I kind of thought uh, this was a technical thing. I hadn't really thought much about it. You know, can you kick a defendant out of the voir dire? I went back afterwards and assigned a whole team of my students to look at this. Can we find any example of a defendant being kicked out of the courtroom voluntarily? I mean, involuntarily, not as if they're being disruptive or something like that. Never in American history, save one occasion, has a defendant been kicked out during voir dire. That was in the Civil War. And in the Civil War, when the, when the Judge Advocate General found out about it, that conviction was immediately thrown out. It happened once again in, 18, in 1890, but the Supreme Court said, reversed that and said it was so contrary to the principles of natural justice that the conviction had to be thrown out. In America, we don't do that. We don't kick people out of their own trials. How was this defended, this policy in the D.C. Circuit? It was defended by saying, well, the law in Rwanda is that we kick people out of the courtroom, that they can kick people out of the courtroom, so why can't we? Well, that strikes me as exactly the wrong way to think about this set of problems. These are American trials. They should apply American rules and American constitutional values. And I don't particularly care that the law of Rwanda allows someone to be kicked out of their own trial. The second thing that, uh, that, that the second part of this on the domestic piece has to do with the role of the courts. President Bush's November 13th order said the federal courts had no business reviewing what he was doing in these military commission trials, even though the most awesome powers of government were at stake, life imprisonment and the death penalty. Um, the Supreme Court rebuked that and said, no, just as in other military commission trials, such as ex parte Kieran of the Nazi saboteurs in World War II, or General Yamashita's trial in 1946, so too the federal courts have the business here of making sure that this trial system complies with the American Constitution and other applicable American laws and treaties. Now, I'm sure I'm not going to persuade a lot of you that that was the right substantive result. But I do want to leave you with this thought. Was it the right result on a whole other level? Suppose that you disagree with me on the merits of the case. Here's what I said when I came out um, uh, right after we found out we won on the steps of the Supreme Court. This is almost verbatim. I said, think about what happened this day. You have a fourth grade educated Yemeni, Salim Hamdan, accused of conspiring with one of the world's most evil men, Osama bin Laden. He was alleged to be his driver. And he takes his case against the nation's most powerful man, the world's most powerful man, President Bush, and he brings his case all the way up to the highest court of the land, and he wins. That's something really amazing about America. In many other countries, Mr. Hamdan would have been shot for bringing his case. More to the point for me, his lawyer would have been shot. Um, <laughs> it reminded me of what 
Then Judge Roberts said at his confirmation hearing, and here I'm paraphrasing, but what he said was the great thing about the Supreme Court is that on the one side of the courtroom, you can have the, uh, the, the corporation with all the powerful law firms, the Baker and Hostetlers and all the, you know, all the law books and everything on one side of the room. And on the other side, you've got the little guy who's got none of that. He's not got, he doesn't have the fancy law firms or the law books. But if the little guy has a good argument in the Supreme Court, he can win. Not always, but certainly vis-a-vis the other branches of government. That's something really remarkable about our American system. And that strikes me as the message we should be sending to the world when we think about American exceptionalism. That American exceptionalism is not just our divine right. It is actually right that we have a better model for dealing with conflicts than other countries. We believe we're strong enough that we can let our courts handle some of these issues and even say that their leader makes mistakes. That's something tremendously remarkable. That's not weakness to me. That's strength. And that certainly is not the law of Rwanda. It is emphatically the law of the United States. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. I am really happy to address this 25th anniversary Federalist Society convention, as I've always enjoyed addressing the countless gatherings of the Federalist Society throughout the years. And I'm delighted to say that there is a student contingent here today from my law school, New York Law School, their uh, Federalist Society group, so I'm very proud of that. I'm I'm also very proud of the fact that when a group of students at New York Law School quite a few years ago decided to first uh, organize a Federalist Society chapter many, many years ago, they asked me to be their faculty advisor. Now, some of you may say this just shows how hard it is to find a conservative law professor. But what it really shows is that these New York Law School students understood and remembered the founding libertarian principles of this organization. So uh, for the rest of you, I'm going to do what I always do when I address this organization, and that is to remind you of your libertarian founding principles, which are directly relevant to this panel's topic. In the mission statement of the Federalist Society, the opening words are, the Federalist Society is founded on the principle that the state exists to preserve freedom. The society seeks to reorder priorities within the legal system to place a premium on individual liberties. Also key to this panel's topic, your mission statement declares that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution. Well, I don't even have time now to list the many ways in which the so-called war on terror has violated these fundamental precepts of the Federalist Society with devastating consequences for liberty, democracy, and last but far from least, devastating consequences for national security. For details on all of those points that I can't cover here, 
I refer you to the website of a certain organization that has been promoting the libertarian aspect of your agenda for almost 90 years now, uh, but who's counting? And I am, of course, referring to the American Civil Liberties Union, which has been working very closely with national security experts and other diverse allies in our campaign to keep our great country both safe and free. To the contrary, many post-9-11 measures have been the worst of both worlds. They do undermine human rights, both at home and around the world, but they do not help effectively to counter terrorism. Lifelong military and intelligence officials have said, and I'm echoing one of the points that Neil made, quoting some of these experts, they have said that a fatal flaw in our so-called war on terror is that we are losing the moral authority and credibility that is essential in what is fundamentally a war of ideas and values. Now, let me quote just two examples now. I'm going to quote Charles Krulak, a Marine Corps commandant, and Joseph Hoare, a commander-in-chief of U.S. Central Command. They recently wrote, This war will be won or lost not on the battlefield, but in the minds of our supporters, of potential supporters who have not yet thrown in their lot with the enemy. If we forfeit our values by signaling that they are negotiable in situations of grave or imminent danger, we drive those undecideds into the arms of the enemy. This way lies defeat, and we are well down the road to it. Among other post-9-11 policies, these two military leaders strongly denounced secret CIA interrogation programs that use, and I'm going to again quote these military leaders, torture techniques, euphemistically called waterboarding, sensory deprivation, sleep deprivation, and stress positions, conduct we used to call war crimes. As we learned just last month, the Justice Department has continued to authorize torture in secret memos, carrying out policies that had already triggered courageous internal criticism by even committed conservative Republicans who otherwise support the administration's presidentialist policies, including somebody who was supposed to be on our panel this afternoon, Jack Goldsmith. And this is just the latest in a long series of shocking revelations about various secret illegal programs claimed to be justified by the president's apparently limitless sense of his commander-in-chief power. And I'd like to remind you of some earlier revelations in this vein, which we learned about thanks not only to uh, intrepid investigative reporters, but also to courageous and principled whistleblowers inside the government and military. These earlier revelations range from the CIA secretly detaining, abusing, and rendering prisoners to countries where they are tortured, uh, to the FBI and Defense Department spying on individuals and groups who were just peacefully expressing their views on issues from the Iraq War to the environment to animals' rights, uh, to the massive misuse of the intrusive national security letter power, uh, as has been scathingly critiqued by none other than the Justice Department's own Inspector General to the National Security Agency's surveillance of the phone and online communications of completely innocent American citizens right here in the United States without any judicial review at all, 
Now, to put that last policy in perspective, let us not forget that it was none other than John Ashcroft from his hospital sickbed who refused to reauthorize that illegal program to his everlasting credit and also to the credit of our absent panel member, Jack Goldsmith, who played a lead role in that positive development as well. I'm proud to note that the ACLU's lawsuit challenging the NSA domestic spying program, uh, only two judges have reached the merits of our claims, but both of those judges have agreed that that program violates both federal statutes and the United States Constitution. Now, when our own beloved country violates our own core principles, we not only shore up our enemies' recruiting efforts, but we also undermine intelligence gathering about terrorist threats. The best sources of such intelligence come from the communities in which terrorists hide. For example, last year when British investigators foiled a plot to bomb transatlantic flights, that was thanks to a tip from a member of London's Muslim community. But such community members are much less likely to come forward if they think that the people they identify are likely to be abused or held for years in a legal black hole. Intelligence experts agree that tortured prisoners will try to end their suffering by saying whatever they think their interrogators want to hear, even if it is false. So torture undermines both human rights and national security. And that very same double flaw infects every post-9-11 tactic that has violated civil liberties while concentrating unilateral, unchecked power in the executive branch. These abuses are alienating our allies, invigorating al-Qaeda, and diverting resources from the essential anti-terrorism efforts that national security experts do advocate. Uh, for example, no less a military authority than General Colin Powell has said that Guantanamo is doing far more damage than any good. Guantanamo, along with our other extra-legal tactics, including the military commissions that Neil has so uh, courageously and successfully challenged in court, these have been strongly condemned by other top U.S. military leaders and lawyers, as well as many of our brave, dedicated service members and veterans for the reason that, that Neil adverted to, because they reasonably fear that when they are captured, they will be subject to the same mistreatment now that the U.S has subverted the law of war. In addition, these extra-legal tactics have resulted in exactly zero prosecutions of anyone remotely connected to the 9-11 attacks. Only one single man has been convicted through this extra-legal system, David Hicks, an Australian kangaroo trapper. He wasn't even charged with engaging in terrorism. Uh, to the contrary, he was described as fleeing every battlefield he was ever accused of being near. In contrast, dozens of international terrorists have been successfully prosecuted in U.S. federal courts, and many are now serving long sentences in maximum security prisons. In addition to putting these terrorists behind bars, all of these lawful prosecutions share another feature that is at least as important for our ultimate success in the ongoing war on terror. No one is complaining that these convicted terrorists were treated unjustly. Thus, al-Qaeda cannot exploit their fate to recruit more terrorists. For that reason, many experienced federal judges, prosecutors, FBI agents have strongly endorsed the traditional criminal justice approach 
based on its successful track record, and they have opposed any system of administrative or preventive detention or special courts. And here I part company with my co-panelist, Neil. He and Jack have advocated these special courts. But on the other side, let me quote just one of the many experienced prosecutors and judges who have said our federal courts are doing an excellent job and can continue to do so. Her name is Kellyanne Moore. She headed the terrorism section of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. As she wrote, those who commit terrorist acts should be tried as the criminals they are instead of the warriors they claim to be. If the Guantanamo detainees were prosecuted in federal courts instead of being designated as combatants, most by now would be serving prison time as convicted terrorists instead of being celebrated as victims or freedom fighters. A federal judge who presided over a trial that led to the conviction of another terrorist wrote an op-ed a couple weeks ago in which he noted another benefit of our tried and true criminal justice system. I'm referring to Judge John Kunauer, who sits in Seattle and was appointed by President Reagan. He presided over the trial of Ahmed Rassam, the confessed Algerian terrorist, for his role in a plot to bomb the Los Angeles airport. As Judge Kunauer wrote, that experience strengthened my conviction that American courts guided by our Constitution are fully capable of trying suspected terrorists and can protect Americans from terrorism. And then Judge Kunauer added, for two years after his conviction, thanks in part to the fairness he was shown by the court, Mr. Rassam provided intelligence and use that was useful to terrorism investigations around the world as German, Italian, French, and British authorities attest. U.S. diplomats and human rights activists around the world have complained that the extra-legal U.S. policies have emboldened dictators everywhere, including in countries where it's strategically important for us to shore up democracy and human rights. On this point, I'd like to quote Tom Malinowski, the Washington Policy Advocate of, uh, Director of Human Rights Watch. He wrote, America's detention policies are a gift to dictators everywhere. They can use America's poor example to shield themselves from international criticism and pressure. Back in the Cold War, communist leaders tried to do the same thing, but it didn't work. Dissidents and ordinary people behind the Iron Curtain knew that America wasn't perfect, but they believed that the United States was at least dedicated to the principle that governments were bound by law to respect human rights. It gave them hope that a different way of life was possible and the courage to fight for it. I'd like to end by quoting General David Petraeus, U.S. commander in Iraq, who recently sold his troops the following. Adherence to our values is what distinguishes us from our enemy. This fight depends on securing the population, which must understand that we, not our enemies, occupy the moral high ground. Thank you. It is my pleasure to round out this great panel. I'll go through uh, a number of points I wanted to make, respond to some of the observation made by my colleagues, and I promise actually I'll talk at least a little bit about foreign policy since uh, that's what this panel calls for, at least in part. Um, the first big issue uh, that's been addressed by a couple of panelists, certainly by Neil, particularly by Nadine, is 
the proposition that our behavior is so violative of our own constitutional norms and tradition, we're in fact undermining our exceptionalism, we're, we're hurting our image in the world. I happen, of course, to disagree with this argument, and I want to tell you why. The sort of a, there are a number of claims that are usually advanced to support this broad proposition. The first policy argument is that we have civil liberties today, and again, you heard this from Nadine, that are being unnecessarily, and I emphasize what unnecessarily, sacrificed on the altar of public safety. And this argument usually has two dimensions, at least. The first one, at least implicitly, posits the pre-September 11 balance between liberty and order is just about right. And any other effort to tilt it in, in, in a different uh, dimension is, is, is fundamentally unnecessary. Nadine and I actually had these discussions before, and I always challenge the critics to come up with something that shows what is the different way of balancing liberty and order in post-September 11, aside from such obvious and uncontroversial things as strengthening cockpit doors. And I, I really get a very, very good, good answer. But in, more generally, I, I find this sort of claim mystifying. I mean, we all agree in principle that liberty and order are balanced differently in, in wartime and peacetime. I wish I told you, but it was my insight. But it isn't it's been mentioned by a number of people, including uh, late Chief, Chief Justice Rehnquist and his excellent, his excellent book entitled All Laws But One. So if the pre-September 11 balance between liberty and order was sufficient to, to handle the exigencies of today, then this balance was entirely too harsh, in my opinion, and, and not sufficiently protective of individual liberties, and, and ladies and gentlemen, after decades of a Warren and Burger Court uh, veritable revolution to argue that the pre-September 11 balance was, was kind of harsh, to put it mildly, is not particularly credible. Now, we do have people who claim, and uh, I, I don't know if Nadine would agree with my characterization, uh, and I think she's one of them, but this is not a real war, that this is a terrorism, but law enforcement uh, therefore, law enforcement paradigm is the right way to deal with it, and I'll address it in some greater details in, in, in a few minutes. But that certainly is an answer to, to the first proposition. Well, the second argument, uh, but I wanted to, uh, to acquaint you with is again, which we heard a little bit today, is the notion that all the bad things, all the civil liberty threatening ways that the government is, is pursuing are really not useful. You know, uh, data mining, looking for, you know, lots of conversations for warrantless surveillance um, doesn't really enhance your security. It merely inundates the government of lots of useful information. Uh, and, you know, things like torture, which is a subject I hate talking about, unfortunately, <laughs> end up talking a lot which I, incidentally, uh, I'm perhaps to the left of, of Neil on that. I think that torture is always unacceptable in any circumstances, but I, I certainly believe that there are techniques well short of torture and well short of something called CID, cruel and human integrating treatment, that involve things like temperature and sensory manipulation that may be permissible. But you see, the critics wouldn't, I mean, instead of even having a debate about the moral and legal dimension of this proposition, if, if it's useless, then there's nothing to debate. Why is it useless? Well, because, you know, we have a lot of military and intelligence professionals who told us that people lie under torture. You know what? Well, last time I checked, bad guys have been interrogated lie all the time, whether you torture them or interrogate them harshly or not. You have to take what they say with a grain of salt. And sometimes, if, if a timeline is very short, no. If they mislead you, that's really bad. But if a timeline is long enough, your biggest problem as the interrogator is they're not talking at all. 
if they lie about where the safe house is and you send your agents and you realize that there's nothing there or there's a kindergarten, you can always go and talk to them again. But to me, the notion that all of those things are inherently useless in some sense is unworthy of a great democratic tradition that we have, which is to debate tough issues, agree or disagree about the policy or legal parameters. But if all of it is, 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 is useless, there's really nothing to debate. Then there is some kind of a, a bizarre proclivity on the part of this administration to just trample civil liberty unnecessarily. And renditions are also unnecessary. And rapport building is wonderful. Again, I can spend half an hour talking about rapport building, but I just wanted to tell you one thing. In late 2001, early 2004, I urge you to check that. All of the major newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, were not big fans of the administration, were pointing out that the usual FBI-led rapport building techniques were not working with people we capture. Gee, why is that surprising? Um, whatever you think about them, they are very committed people, driven by their ideology, different culture. We hardly have people in the FBI who understand that culture, speak their language. This is not trying to build rapport with some, you know, white-collar criminal or bank robber. But this is one aspect of debate that really troubles me. Um, there is, you know, also some serious, when we talk about trampling civil liberty, there is some serious historical blindness involved. Now, people who claim that the Bush administration is asserting and exercising unprecedented powers. Well, it's interesting. If you look at this historically, of course, and what's the right baseline? If you believe that this is war, as I do, you look at the predecessor wartime administration, which is Lincoln, Wilson, and, and FDR. You don't look at Calvin Coolidge or Jimmy Carter. You look at, at, at the books and treatises about their presidency, and I, I admit I love this country dearly. I think we're great people, but there's lots and lots of aberrant behavior by various wartime administrations and, and, and throughout American history, including the, you know, the Palmer raids, which were a little bit after the war, but certainly in that atmosphere, the internment of Japanese Americans uh, during World War II, Lincoln's tendency, in addition to put a lot of people in jail without benefit of habeas corpus, to, you know, he was a great man, but a number of historians have written that he also jailed some of his opponents in, in, in the process without according them again of benefit of habeas. Wood Wilson's order to Postmaster General not to deliver newspapers and magazines featuring subversive propaganda. I mean, let me stipulate here, but with the exception of the Palmer raids, I think that all of his practices I just mentioned are flatly unconstitutional, cannot be countenanced even in wartime. But I don't remember many critics pointing out when they look at this that compared with previous wartime administrations, this administration is darn pretty, pretty darn good. Aside from a sort of a historical amnesia side, we have a problem of legal and constitutional misperceptions. The common misperception is that the Bush administration has made unprecedented claims of executive power. And to put it mildly, is is a myth. Um, you know, incidentally, Nadine is right in her fundamentals. It's, it's the application of these fundamentals that that that, that, that troubles me. Uh, but let me use one example. There are people who claim that the president has asserted dispensing power, which is, of course, not a part of our general dispensing power. It's not a part of our constitutional history and was quite controversial even in the, in the day of, of British kings. Well, that's not what the administration has done. The president claims, uh, <clears throat> the, president claims the ability um, to disregard oh, just to disregard those statutes that are unconstitutional, not those statutes. It disagrees with, as a policy proposition, the last time you check, 
the people, actually, the Office of Legal Counsel, who wrote a very robustly worded opinion entitled President's Constitutional Authority to Decline to uh, Execute Unconstitutional Statutes, was one Walter Dillinger, and it was done during the Clinton administration's watch. So let me uh, warm you up a little bit more by pointing out, in my opinion at least, what is warping our constitutional system and, and, and impairing our ability to hold our own in this war and, and successfully project our values is not the imperial presidency but unprecedented congressional assault on, 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 on presidential powers that dwarfs that what we've seen in the time of, of Vietnam. We can, we can talk about it in, in, in some detail. Let me uh, um, chat briefly about uh, military commissions and, and whatnot, not to uh, engage in a very detailed debate with Neil here, but the notion that the president prior to Hamdan um, was trying to create military commissions on his own, I think, is, in my opinion, not correct. In addition to his inherent power, the president relied on UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is basically something has been recodified repeatedly and goes back to... Uh, Articles, something called Articles of War, early in our constitutional history, and relied on authorization to use military force. And yes, when Congress came back with the Military Commissions Act, it tackled all those issues with great, greater specificity. But the President certainly were not operating on the basis of his inherent authority. And incidentally, that's my, one of my other problems with, with how the, the, the interbranch disputes are being handled. There's sort of a notion that you cannot rely on a broad congressional wording. Uh, is, is somewhat silly in a way. Congress undermines its own authority because we need to come back repeatedly and, and enact new statutes and sort of do it periodically because the old statute, be it AUMF or UCMJ, is not useful. Well, first of all, there's no constitutional basis for it. But second of all, since Congress is not capable of, of constantly refining its enactments, it's actually making itself less able to participate in, in this particular exercise. Uh, one other thing I'm just tempted to point out, and maybe we'll get into it in the question and answer period, the notion that um, we somehow disregarded that Neil made international law of war uh, and we misconstrued Geneva Convention that does not apply properly, is to put it mildly, in my opinion, a myth. It's the Supreme Court that twisted, ladies and gentlemen, the Geneva Conventions and a fairly long legacy of laws and customs of war out of existence by, first of all, miraculously pointing out that we are not in the state of an international armed conflict uh, at this point in time, and second, that, that despite voluminous indications to the contrary, that so-called common Article 3 applies, and constructing, uh, incidentally, and they, they did not really say, that, which is good, but this article apply apropos of, of, of points made by Mike by its own force. They actually found that Congress, technically, if you read the opinion very carefully, legislatively incorporated all that, a very innocuous reference to the, to the laws of war. I mean, my view is that they really wanted to come out the way they, they did, the majority, and they, they try to come up with some way to justify that. Now, let me just talk briefly about two other things. Law enforcement paradigm. Much as I love law enforcement paradigm, and with all due respect to the judge, it is utter errant nonsense that you can prosecute successfully the vast majority of people in Guantanamo before American courts, civilian courts, because of exclusionary rules, because of chain of custody rules. In my opinion, it is virtually impossible to prosecute anybody who was captured on a foreign battlefield um, where physical evidence is obtained in, 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 in that condition. Virtually impossible. So the simple choice we have is to 
let most of those people go or prosecute them uh, for military commission system, which does have a veritable constitutional legacy. I don't have time to talk about foreign policy. Uh, let me just say this. In my opinion, we have no choice but to promote democracy because the conditions of non-democracy promotion and sort of worshiping of artificial stability is what gave us September 11. So this is not some kind of clash between idealistic Wilsonianism and, you know, realpolitik Jacksonianism. Warts and all, democracy promotion is the only path that would enable us to drain the social pathologies that, uh, that have helped foster groups that uh, brought us 9-11. Thank you. Many thanks to our panelists. Um, I will now ask each of our panelists if they want to briefly respond to any points made by the others, uh, beginning with Professor Paulson. Um, well, why don't we just get to questions? Is, well, I'll see if other people want okay. to say more things. I'm fine with that. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move directly to questions then. If there. I wanted to respond to David. Okay. That's okay. I'm, not okay, I'm leave sorry. Point here. No, 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 I... If somebody wants me to respond to him, ask me a question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do we have a question here? I have a question, uh, Brian Walsh, and um, I agree. I think uh, most conservatives that I know agree that um, it's very likely that the war on terror is going to undermine or at least the way that um, the public debate is going, is going to undermine the perspective of the world about um, American uh, justice, American morality. I think a lot of conservatives feel that one of the reasons that is is that there's been an unprecedented um, obscuring of important distinctions that have always been constitutionally significant up until the war on terror. And one of those examples I would uh, mention is that I'm not sure, maybe one of the panelists can correct me, but... I'm not sure that there were any um, federal courts that prior to 9-11 ever held that um, sleep deprivation, for example, was torture. Um, I think there were some very clearly defined um, definitions of torture, and I think we had some uh, federal court decisions also that were pretty clear in what torture was. I'm not sure sleep deprivation would have um, applied, and I'm not sure there's been a holding on that. So a, couple, a question I have for the panelists is that... Um, some of the important distinctions, I think it's really incumbent on those who are opposed to this war to tell us why these are not enemy combatants, to tell us why they're not unlawful enemy combatants and why they shouldn't be treated like um, enemy combatants have been treated throughout our constitutional history. Uh, that's one distinction. Second is, uh, why is this? I think it's incumbent upon them and not upon uh, the right. Uh, when we've had an unprecedented attack, uh, Neil pointed out that we had not used military commissions for about 50 years. We also had not had an attack of this magnitude ever on our, uh, our soil, and certainly not since World War II. So why is this not a war? And um, why shouldn't they be treated like war, uh, criminals have been all throughout history? Um, Professor Strassen, do you want to start with that? Okay. Thank you. Um, let me first begin by, I think, applauding what you say at the beginning about the public debate being obscured. I, I for years, have been really upset with, I think, the silliness on both sides that, uh, you know, the political left calls the administration torturers and those who support them torturers. And the political right calls the folks on the left sometimes, you know, people who just basically want another 9-11 or don't care uh, about security. And I think both of those are just silly. And um, and I also think some of the demonizing 
um, on both sides of the lawyers who've been fighting for the Guantanamo detainees, as well as the lawyers in the administration has been deeply, deeply tragic. I think of, you know, my, you know, my academic colleague, John Yu, who's been, I think, vilified. Um, and we can disagree. You know, I certainly disagree with uh, the memos that have come out, but I think that it's not productive to uh, engage in a debate that has that level of kind of personal acrimony on it. Obviously, these are very difficult issues. Now, with respect to some of your substantive questions, um, I'm, I'm not sure any federal court has called sleep deprivation torture. So I just I'm not quite sure what you're referring to there. But uh, I'd be pretty surprised if I mean, unless we're talking about some really extended period of weeks that um, that any court either has or will rule in such a way. I think your first big substantive question was, well, why aren't these people unlawful enemy combatants? And I think most of the people who work on that side of it would say there's a process for determining that. And that process is in Article 5 of the Geneva Conventions, which require prisoner of war hearings. And we've given those prisoner of war hearings, for example, 1,200 in Desert Storm or uh, the thousands in Vietnam, and we didn't give them here. And so that's what a lot of people say. It's a process question. I think, it, you know, my personal sense is that you're right, that a lot of these people will turn out to be enemy combatants. Um, and that's precisely why I think those hearings should have been given. It, maybe even if it's not technically legally required under the convention, just as a matter of prudence, just as in Iraq, I think it would have been the wise strategic call. Uh, you then said, well, we haven't we haven't been attacked in 50 years. And please explain, uh, Neil, why this is not a war. Well, sir, I actually do believe it is. And I do believe it's an armed conflict. And I do believe that the president has special war powers. And I certainly don't think that the September 10th balance of liberty and security is the correct one. But given that, the question is, what do we do? I don't think we embrace a process that says if we're outside of the immediate emergency situation, outside of September 15, 2001, that the president should be able to do a lot of this on his own. I think we as a nation develop strength and credibility when we say us all together, the Congress and the courts, uh, to the extent the courts are relevant, obviously things like most war powers thing, the courts have nothing to do with. But I do think Congress plays an important role. And here I do want to disagree a bit with um, with uh, David Rifkin, because David said, well, we should allow broad authorizations of force uh, to basically uh, authorize individual uh, things like military commissions um, uh, and so on. And there, um, I think that's a very dangerous proposition because what it might, might, what you're basically signaling to Congress is be careful next time you authorize force. Because if you authorize force, an administration might use it for all sorts of things that you never contemplated. There's not a person in Congress when they vote, voted to authorize force on September 18th that thought they were authorizing surveillance or military commissions. They haven't been able to find one person who's thought that. Of course not. Now, there's a bundle of rights that you get in wartime. It's not clear to me that either military commissions or surveillance, both of which had been regulated by Congress in the interim with the, with the Uniform Code of Military Justice and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, are within that bundle of rights. Can I just clarify something that I said? Okay. I just want to clarify that when I was talking about torture, I... I think a lot of critics and opponents suggest that sleep deprivation is torture, but we don't have that constitutional history of equating sleep deprivation with torture. So those type of allegations, I think, are unproductive, is what I was trying to say earlier. Professor Strawson. 
Well, I, I think um, Neil has made what I, is the most important point, and that is the concept of an unlawful enemy combatant. If you rely on the history that you were invoking in your question, Brian, historically that determination has not been made by the president unilaterally, which was what was done in this situation. There has been a process. It doesn't involve the full panoply of due process rights that we have in the criminal justice system, but it's more than the president's own say-so. And the reason why that's very important and why it's been done in every prior conflict, including the uh, Desert Storm, and the reason why, to the best of my knowledge, it's universally advocated by our own military is because mistakes are made on the battlefield. Uh, and we know from the hundreds of people that have been released from Guantanamo that many of them were swept up in error. In fact, many of them, and here's a point where I disagree with David, many of them were admittedly not even captured on the battlefield. They were captured very far away in different countries produced by bounty hunters. And it doesn't do us any good to uh, hold those kinds of people without giving them any kind of due process. And that's why I want to get back to um, how fundamentally damaging this is to our national security efforts. And I want to quote uh, somebody from Human Rights Watch who said, does anyone believe we are really made safer by detaining in Cuba at most a few hundred of the hundreds of thousands of angry young men in the Muslim world who on any given day wish America harm? There is, sadly, no shortage of potential suicide bombers in the world today. Guantanamo makes that problem worse, not better. It creates far more enemies for America than it takes off the battlefield. And I want to tie this in to the new counterinsurgency manual that was just issued by the United States Army, um, which says that in this kind of war, we are never going to be able to kill or capture uh, every single person who w wants to commit terrorist acts against the United States. What we have to do is to diminish what's called their recuperative power. We have to stop their recruiting ability. And Guantanamo is counterproductive to that end. That's why Colin Powell, when he was asked what should we do uh, last summer, he said, shut it down. And I mean today. David, a couple of points. One is a, perhaps a constitutional nitpick, but I can tell you that uh, broad statutes that use certain words certainly have consequences, but I suggest they will. The Supreme Court, in, in, in Hamdi opinion, in explaining why AUMF, those of you not heard the acronym, authorization to use military force, dispenses with something called non-detention act, uh, had no problem with that. There's no word about detention in AUMF, but everybody understands that if you're serious about waging war, you need to take people who are rendered hors de combat, you, 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 you just surrender, into custody. In fact, there's an obligation to give quarters. So if you prevent uh, the president from uh, taking people into custody, he's not waging a war. Incidentally, I, I, one of the things, we don't have time to get into it, uh, the notion that congressional regulation for something called FISA, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or what is essentially in, in the current conditions is battlefield intelligence, that a very prescriptive congressional regulation does not impair a president's power to wage war is silly. Because you have people, I don't know when you was on that, you have people who argue that you need to use the FISA framework, which is individual-specific warrants or orders in the FISA parlance, if you're doing it in the United States. Well, let me, uh, let me submit to you that if we actually have, I mean, forget about al-Qaeda agents in place, but if an invasion from Mexico or Canada of, of a bunch of, you know, 
al-Qaeda operatives as we had in certain times in American history, with Punch Civilian and whatnot, under that law, you cannot listen to their communications about going and getting warrants from a FISA court. That's absurd. Let me make one last point. I, I, I agree on the fun. I'm glad that Neil, at least, and I agree on the fundamentals. The problem is this. You can kill the American ability to wage war either by denying it's, it's a wartime paradigm and legal architecture of laws of war applies and say it's, it's law enforcement, or you can kill it by a thousand cuts. And let's talk about procedure. With all due respect, the notion that you are supposed to get Article 5 hearings for everybody is not true. If you look at the language of it, it says in case of doubt, okay, which means to a lawyer there's no doubt that somebody is an unlawful combatant. You don't give such a hearing, number one. Number two, even before Military Commissions Act, we have provided more due process, ladies and gentlemen, for dozens and dozens and dozens of reviews to capture the enemy combatants than in any war in human history. I remember sitting once in a, in a meeting in the White House, 2003 time frame, where one of the participants was joking that given how much senior people were spending reading the files, that if we got 10 more files on al-Qaeda, the entire government would come to a halt because they would be able to do anything else. We have more, ladies and gentlemen, judicial engagement in scrutinizing every major wartime decision that bears upon civil liberty of Americans or enemy combatants than in any time in American history. We never had recourse to American Article Free courts in any war. Never. And that is still not enough. And this is not enough. And more due process. And here comes a tipping point where whether you drive as a matter of law or policy, you break the system. And we're perilously close to that tipping point. There are a lot of things floating around in these uh, questions. Basically, to to try and put a a clear framework on it, I think about it this way, sort of three points. One is, I think it's undeniable that we are legally and factually in a condition of war. Whether you think the initial 9-11 attacks inaugurated the state of war or Congress's authorization for the use of military force was the legal equivalent of a declaration of war, the full war power of the United States has constitutionally been brought into play. Okay, that's point number one. Legally, we are at war. Secondly, a lot of what uh, Neil and Nadine were talking about is sort of arguments about what is the constitutional scope of the commander-in-chief power during time of war. I've elaborated these views in in other articles, but the long and short of it is that in addition to directing the exercise of American military force, the commander-in-chief power embraces the power to capture, detain, interrogate, and impose appropriate military punishment on captured enemy individuals. In time of war, where that war is legally authorized, and the 918.01 authorization is a sweeping authorization, the legal regime is different. I think it is misleading to assert that there is a separation of powers problem with the president exercising his commander-in-chief powers. If the... If the power properly falls within the president as commander-in-chief, then the principle of separation of powers dictates that neither Congress nor the courts constitutionally may restrict it. 
Now, the third point is just that, you know, okay, we have legal condition of war. war. Secondly, war triggers the president's full constitutional powers as commander in chief. The third point is a policy point. How the president chooses to exercise this, you know, in terms of, you know, the public relations effect or whether to go to the full extent of his powers or whether to abide uh, by international treaties as a matter of, uh, uh, of policy or pragmatism is a question I don't feel competent to answer. And, and, and I'm not sure that all my co-panelists are competent to answer it either. The reason you vest these powers as a president is because a president vested with fuller information is able to decide which policies, how far to go, are appropriate in the circumstances. We may have political disagreements with it. We may think it's bad public relations. But I'm just a lawyer from a small town in northern Wisconsin. So on the basic point of legal authority, I can see nothing wrong with the president exercising the full powers of commander-in-chief in a situation where they're legally authorized. Well, as the Supreme Court has said, the president is commander-in-chief of the armed forces, not commander-in-chief of the nation. And one of the reasons why um, in the work that, that I've described in the positions the ACLU has taken, we work with many many conservative organizations. I know the Federalist Society um, doesn't advocate policy positions, so the Federalist Society is not among them. Uh, but many of you probably belong to some of these other organizations or are familiar with them, uh, including the American Conservative Union, gun owners' rights organizations, Phyllis Schlafly Legal Forum. I, I noticed Phyllis was speaking today. And, one of, and even some organizations that are on the so-called religious right uh, have said to their members, look, you may like to have a very strong concept of commander-in-chief powers when George W. Bush is president. Are you really going to feel that way if Hillary Clinton becomes president? And I really wonder, we have to have a neutral view here, and is this something that we want to go with the office, no matter who is the individual who is holding that office? Do we want any single individual to hold us such awesome powers unchecked by Congress and by the courts? Whatever it's could... worth, I would. I would not change my view, and I don't think Mike would, in terms of a proper parameters for the exercise of President's Cashier Reporty, whether George W. Bush or Hillary Clinton. I'd like to ask Professor Katyal a question, if I could, which is uh, the authorization for the use of military force uh, approved the use of all necessary and appropriate force to pursue al-Qaeda and the people who had harbored them and to bring them to, uh, to justice. Uh, the words necessary and appropriate or necessary and proper are a term of art in American law as we learn from our first course in constitutional law. Necessary and proper or necessary and appropriate means that which is useful to or convenient to accomplishing a certain end. Is it useful to or convenient to the goal of pursuing al-Qaeda to uh, hold military commission trials? Uh, it would seem to me that it would be, and in the wake of Hamdan, Congress, in fact, found that it was and passed the Military Commission Act. So I guess the question, um, my, my question would be, didn't Congress, with the authorization for the use of military force, really give the president 
uh, a declaration of war and some authority to do this, as is evidenced by Congress passing the Military Commissions Act after Hamdan. Right. Well, it's, of course, not clear to me that the language of Chief Justice Marshall's uh, in McCulloch versus Maryland with respect to Article 1, Section 8, guides statutory questions. If it were, uh, it's a very difficult statutory question, because if you look at, for example, the 2002 authorization to use military force in Iraq, it's gives the president, Congress gives the president the ability to use necessary and appropriate force as he determines. And that language is not in the 2001 AUMF. So if we're playing the statutory game, it sure seems that the president was given less power in the 2001 AUMF than the 2002 Iraq one. Now, look, I actually think that when Cong I agree with David, that when Congress authorizes force, they authorize a subset of force that is detention. That is, if you can shoot someone on the battlefield, then you should, it seems to me, be able to detain them. That doesn't, not everything is a subset of force, though, for example. I don't think torture is a subset of force. I think that's a different power. And similarly, I think the power to try people has historically been a different power. Now, even if I'm wrong, and suppose Congress did authorize military commissions, trial of people, uh, the question is, did that supplant the pre-existing legal framework, that is, the Geneva Conventions or the Uniform Code of Military Justice? And there I think the answer is clear. Congress didn't speak, didn't speak in any way, shape, or form to supplanting those existing ways that we conduct military trials or hold enemy combatants. And under a decision that has an even longer provenance than, um, than uh, the McCulloch versus Maryland one, the Charming Betsy case decided by Chief Justice Marshall in 1804, uh, he said an act of Congress must be construed consistently with the law of nations basically wherever possible. So I would want to read that AUMF in light of the long-standing law of war principles uh, that are at issue here, and that one of those is, of course, the Geneva Conventions. Yeah, I'm sorry, we should go to another question from the audience, I think, so go ahead. Uh, Professor Ketchell, what are your views on the constitutionality of the Military Commissions Act, and how do you think that international law and treaties should play a role in that determination? Yeah. Well, well, I'm much happier about the fact that Congress is getting into the game. And for the same reason that, for example, you think about Thayer, uh, Thayer's classic work on judicial review. He says the problem with exuberant judicial review is it's going to sap the energy of the people to legislate. I have the same view about executive branch activism. I worry that these interpretations of the Commander-in-Chief Clause are so broad that they signal to Congress, don't even bother, because we can just do what we want. And that's a very dangerous thing. And so I generally prefer the democratic result of Article 1, Section 7, Congress and the President working together. Now, I think that the... Um, I think the Military Commissions Act is going to go down in the Supreme Court. Um, I think it's going to go down because uh, the, this Supreme Court, and you can disagree as a, as a normative matter, but descriptively, I think this Supreme Court uh, has, 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 has embraced the view that the administration has gone too far um, in the war on terror. I mean, if you look at just the track record here, um, you know, uh, if you look over time, uh, you know, it's very hard for the president in wartime to lose a case in the Supreme Court. You know, you think about Korematsu or any of these other cases. It's very hard. 
Um, it's kind of like failing a class at Georgetown. You really have to try to do it. Um, and here they've done, managed to do it. And, you know, so many times they, they said we could detain American citizens indefinitely uh, without due process. They lost that in 2004. They said no habeas rights for Guantanamo. They lost that in 2004. They said military commissions. They lost that in 2006. They, they said Geneva conventions don't apply. They lost that in 2006. I mean, this is really remarkable. Just when you think about it over the course of American history, and I don't quite think that one could say the court is captured by the political left, given the composition of the court um, and the other decisions. So there is something going on here. Um, the thing that bothers me the most about the Military Commissions Act is, um, is this. Um, I think about what Justice Scalia said in the Cruzan opinion, in his Cruzan opinion. He said, there's something great about the Equal Protection Clause, and it's that when you force people, when you force Congress to legislate even-handedly, laws look a lot fairer. When, you for, when Congress can slice and dice the population and say, uh, for example, as they might be inclined to do now, members of the Federalist Society pay double income tax, um, they, that's a good deal for them, right? Because you're a small population. I know you're growing, but relatively small. And they can lower the taxes on the rest of us who aren't members uh, and stick it to you guys. And Justice Scalia said that's what leads to arbitrary and unfair legislation. The thing about the Military Commission Act that bothers me is this. For the first time uh, in American history, the Congress has set up a trial system that only applies to the 12 million green card holders and the 5 billion people around the world who can't vote, who have no vote in the process. We've had military commissions in the past, as you've heard David Rifkin say. They've always applied to American citizens and foreigners equally. This is the first time in which we've said different rules for us than them. And that, to me, is deeply inconsistent with what this nation is all about. I mean, the clause is equal protection to all persons, all persons. Why? Because Representative Bingham said we need to overrule the worst, he wrote the 14th Amendment, the worst line in the worst Supreme Court case in American history, the line in Dred Scott versus Sanford, which says only citizens have constitutional rights. He said no. Everyone on American soil has constitutional rights. So I, I am a believer in this method of originalism, and I do think that the Military Commissions Act is deeply in tension with that, and for that reason, I do think the Supreme Court will strike it down. Professor Paulson? Well, I, I hate to invite Neil to say yet more things, but I'm going to make him answer this woman's question. <clears throat> okay, the specific question is where Congress has legislatively authorized it. Do you view the Military Commissions Act as being in conflict with international law, and if so, which prevails? Is that right? Yeah, that was part of my question. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, you know, quite honestly, I haven't studied the procedures enough to know whether they comply with international law or not, so it's just not, it's not my field. It's not what I do, so, uh, you know, I just don't know. I'm sorry. I, uh, well... I can tell you I have, and the procedures <laughs> in the Military Commissions Act are a hundred times more fulsome than the past practice with regard to similar procedures. But let me just say something else. You and I agree uh, as to the characterization of the Supreme Court decisions, and, and, and we're facing, it be interesting to see their argument on December 5, but I don't think it's because the administration has done many things wrong. I think it's because we have fundamentally a political culture that, unlike in any war in American history, obsessively focuses on all the bad things we've done. Uh, uh, we have the judiciary that, having spent decades micromanaging the domestic sphere of life, is, uh, and again, they're all cautious. If you didn't have a clamoring 
the, the, the largely partisan clamoring and the, and the popular culture driven, the media driven clamoring for stopping the successes, I think they would have been far more cautious. But let's be clear, it's not about military commissions. The thing that upsets me enormously is, again, a little amnesia here. The critics, ladies and gentlemen, beginning in 2002, wanted military commissions as a part of a detention system because they didn't want people to be detained indefinitely is not the right term, but the duration of hostilities may go years and years and years. They wanted military commissions. Military commissions have gotten the biggest congressional imprimatur, much more so than the procedures for determining whether people are enemy combatants for purposes of detention. Once the MCA goes down, once Guantanamo closes, Nadine, with all due respect, we have finished as far as our ability to detain people we capture in this war. And I know we can detain everybody, but for God's sake, I don't know of any country that's ever prosecuted a multi-year war if our ability to detain individuals, and we cannot render them to another country, we cannot have other people hold them for us, etc., etc. We can hold them for but a few months, and we cannot interrogate them, because the way our military now does it is to gain them and do the, the Mutt and Jeff stuff. It's unfailing politeness and, and, and kiss in the head. That is not a, a serious way of fighting a war. So you can either say it's not a war, or you can drive our ability to perform the most essential war-related task in a way that, that renders it so. And yes, it's, it's, it's horrible, and we're going to pay for it, I'm afraid. I hate to sound like a Sandra here. But yes, the Supreme Court is fixing to strike. But one last thing about equal protection. The long discussion we can have, Neil and I, maybe Nadine, but the notion that the real flaw with MCA, so MCA sets up procedures that are constitutionally appropriate given the fact that individuals involved are enemy combatants and have been confirmed to be as such prior to being put before commissions and complies with the national law if you assume that Geneva Conventions are, are relevant here. Which are, but... Gee, they're not unconstitutional because the president in the military order one excluded U.S. citizens, and that's the order setting military commissions, and Congress tracked that. That's not how I read equal protection jurisprudence. That may be, well, I can say, for example, very straight face, that vast majority of enemy combatants, overwhelming majority, 80, 90, 95%, ain't U.S. citizens. That alone is enough to make it not some kind of an invidious discriminatory distinction, a viable distinction. So you decided that you're going to try the bulk of 95% of your enemies under this statutory regime, and American citizens are going to be tried in another. I would submit to you that's not a serious equal protection problem. It's only a serious equal protection problem in the mind of a court majority that wants to strike it and is, is looking for some reason to articulate. I disagree with just about everything you were calling on me as I was shaking my head. So, uh, but let me start with, I think, a, a really critical factual flaw in, in David's premise. And that is, if Guantanamo closes, then the United States cannot detain captured enemy combatants, people who are captured on the battlefield, or for that matter, people who aren't captured on the battlefield, as to whom there is some basis for believing that they are a threat to the safety of the United States. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody is denying that the military can do what it always has done until now, and that is to comply with the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and if somebody is captured on a battlefield, to comply with that. You don't have to give them due process. If you want to detain them, then you simply have to decide through a competent tribunal whether they are or not 
uh, what their status is or not. And if they are not subject to those military procedures, there are so many procedures under our civil and criminal law. Listen, in a number of the cases that have gone to the Supreme Court, briefs have been filed by a whole host of top law enforcement uh, officials who have previously served in the Justice Department and uh, other top law enforcement positions who have listed the panoply of statutes that are available now that will allow uh, the detention, uh, including material witness laws, um, immigration laws, conspiracy, attempt, threats, uh, and uh, now the Patriot Act expanded detention power. Under the Patriot Act, there's a section that, interestingly enough, the president hasn't even used once that allows him to hold somebody for, uh, Neil may know the exact number, it's a, a couple of weeks, even without any kind of hearing at all. So, and again, if more power is sought, the president can go to Congress and seek even more authority. So we're not saying no detention at all. We're just saying detention consistent with the rule of law. Can I just say 30 seconds? The problem, Indian, with what you're saying is very simple. There are probably enough tools to detain people captured in this country. The problem is this, that other critics want the kind of Article 5 type procedures in determining whether or not you're not going to be combatant. With lawyers and comparable, if not superior, to the level of due process military commissions do. The vast bulk of the people in this war, detained in third countries, grabbed by our allies, hiding in safe houses in urban areas, are not the kind of people we would be able to hold at all. Believe me, if we're going to follow the level of due process that approaches that of federal district courts. And it has nothing to do with national security letters, has nothing to do with Patriot Act, has nothing to do with all the other stuff. David, who in the world is advocating that? I don't, I mean, who's yeah, advocating? Every person who's, I debated, who, including, uh, including folks you mentioned Wait, wait, earlier, you're telling me that people advocate civil to civilian trials and say Iraq no, or, or, no, no. or for detaining or Afghanistan? No, 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 it's okay. not that blunt. What they advocate, Neil, is very precisely, you start going down the path of what is a sufficient level, forget military commissions, what is a sufficient level of due process? You are supposed to provide to somebody for, in, the, in the context of a CSER, whatever you call it, Article 5. And you quickly get into the point of the accused, uh, accused have to be present. He has to need to have a lawyer. And they needs to be, he has an opportunity to introduce exculpatory evidence, including if he says there is somebody, you know, in halfway around the world who can prove that I'm not the one I was in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. It does not work. As I understand it, the only people who make such a claim are for the 305 people at Guantanamo. I've never heard that being for the vast majority of our detainees around the world. It would be a ludicrous claim for advance. I'm just not sure anyone I've ever heard make it. And trust me, I hang out with the people who are likely to make it. Let's, let's go to another question that's been filed. Let's go to another question from the audience. Thanks very much for the panel. Um, one thing that's been brought up a lot is the Geneva Convention. I kind of wonder whether there's kind of a living and breathing version of the Geneva Convention that's been used in a lot of these debates, uh, such as the Hamden decision. And, and that has to be with regard, I'll just give you one example, and that is combatants who are not in uniform. Very specifically, the Geneva Convention set it up so those people basically didn't have any rights because you wanted to punish people who were not in uniform because by not being in uniform, they would put in danger other civilians that were around there. 
And so you were allowed to go and execute people on the field there who were not in uniform. And yet now it seems like the Geneva Convention and the Supreme Court decision that's been talked about here has been kind of broadly interpreted in different ways to go and give people who are out of uniform rights that were only previously granted under the Geneva Convention to those who were in uniform. And I guess uh, Rivkin, uh, in particular, I'd like to hear what he has to say on this. Well, (laughs) I I, I appreciate the slightly unfair advantage. No, I've written about it a great deal. You're absolutely right. The problem is that Geneva Conventions are not the alpha and omega of laws and customs of war. You have predecessor Geneva Conventions. You have Hague Regulations, Declaration of St. Petersburg, and I can go on for a dozen and a half other documents, and lots of custom, and Geneva Conventions were not meant at all to deal with unlawful enemy combatants, okay? And yet people, and, and, and yet we, we're now talking about the fact as if, you know, you don't fit in the procedures set in the Geneva Conventions, that is, a, that is either a violation of, of international law, or depending on how clever you want to be as a Supreme Court justice, because Congress made a reference in one provision in UCMJ to the laws of war. They incorporated that particular vision of Geneva Convention. The fundamental point to keep in mind is this. This is not a debate between expediency and humanitarianism. The question is absolutely right. The reason there was a different regime is because wars are hell under the best circumstances. And there are more important things than treating captured combatants or not, if you're mistaken, better. It's protecting civilians. The way you get treated after capture is driven by how you behave prior to capture. And individuals who fight out of uniform, who do not make an institutional commitment to comply with the laws and customs war, who have no transparent chain of command, who fight out of civilian places, who pretend to be civilians, are causing the unheard level of barbarism in this century, they are, put it mildly, bad people. Okay? <laughs> and, 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 but but the, the, last point, the, last point, the last point I would make, aside from the practical implications, because I'm probably the only person who said it very passionately today about destroying our ability to detain people and hold them, there's an important symbolic legitimacy argument. You always wanted to stigmatize, I know it's a tough term, stigmatize unlawful combatants, to delegitimize them, because at least among your people and your allies, you wanted it to look this way. The more you reduce and eliminate the distinction, by the way, military commissions have always been used to try unlawful combatants, because under laws of war, captured POWs, even if they committed war crimes, are supposed to be treated the same way as you treat your own soldiers that misbehave. Professor Strassen. So um, the question was, is there a living and breathing version of the Geneva Conventions that at issue? And the truth is there is one, and it's the Bush administration's version of them. Let me tell you what I mean by that. For 50 years, the American government has taken the position that common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions apply to all conflicts. That's all Hamdan said. It didn't talk about uniforms or anything. They actually didn't rule on this whole debate David and I are having about Article 5 prisoner of war hearings and so on. They didn't reach that. They had a footnote that said we're just not getting into that. Rather, what they said is that there is a baseline for all detainees and combatants around the world, unlawful or lawful, that's enshrined in common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions. That is the most rudimentary requirements of the laws of war. They just say, quote, the rights indispensable to all civilized peoples must be granted. Okay, we're not talking about the Earl Warren List Bill of Rights. Okay, that's a very, very battlefield basic justice. We've always taken the position, the military's taken the position, it applies in all conflicts, 
This administration, in a secret memo in 2002, said, no, we don't need to be bothered complying with that because, because this conflict is exempt from that. Well, the baseline in Common Article 3, the reason it was written, was to cover civil wars. Those people certainly aren't wearing uniforms and they certainly are not regular combatants. Okay, And the, the notion was, when they wrote it, was a baseline for all conflicts, just where we don't go. That that's what we signed when we and that's what we ratified in the Senate in 1955. Now, look, we can we can think that's bad policy and maybe we should get out of it. Maybe the president has the right to unilaterally abrogate it. Maybe Congress should rethink uh, the common article that we that were a part of common article three. I'm not quite so sure there's a need to all four of our nations, uh, all four JAGs testified our nation's highest uniformed military officials that they train all their soldiers to common article three and they foresee no problem with complying with common article three. So I'm not sure there's a real practical problem here, but if there is a living and breathing version of the of the Geneva Conventions, it's the one the administration has taken by departing from the way the American government has seen it and indeed the rest of the world. I would just add that, uh, as David said, the, the purpose or a purpose here is to protect civilians. And the problem is just because you label or somebody else labels uh, an individual, an illegal enemy combatant or an unlawful enemy combatant doesn't even mean that that person is a combatant at all, uh, let alone somebody who is an illegal or unlawful combatant. At the very least, you need some rudimentary process to, so that people who are civilians, who are aid workers, who are humanitarian workers, who are journalists, who are just uh, lawyers who happen to be captured by bounty hunters so they can get all this money from the Americans. We need to separate those from the bona fide, illegal, unlawful, enemy combatant, bad people. I can't leave Neil Katyal's uh, comments unanswered. It is plain, as the questioner, questioner's proposition uh, invites, that the Geneva Conventions and as David explained, do not apply to Al-Qaeda. Uh, Al-Qaeda is not a nation state, and Al-Qaeda's combatants are, within the meaning of international law, unlawful combatants whose actions and conduct take them outside the scope of the Geneva Conventions. Neil then talks about Common Article 3, which is an added provision to cover civil wars. The language itself is conflicts not of an international nature. Okay. The administration's interpretation of this in the famous and I think entirely correct U. Della Hunty memo in 2002 is that this is a conflict of an international nature. It involves a transnational attack by a transnational organization. This is not covered by the Civil War, and in any event, these individuals' conduct would take them outside the protections of the Geneva Convention. Hamdan, in a very limited, oblique, roundabout, convoluted sense, implies a different interpretation of Common Article Three in order to re reach Justice Stevens' transparently result-oriented conclusion. I think, and I've debated this with Neil before, I think that Hamdan is one of the 20 or 30 worst Supreme Court decisions of all time. The only thing that keeps it... 
but the but but in its in, in, in a sense a relatively harmless one. The only reason it keeps it low on the list, I called it in the conference, and, and you know, Neil took offense. Nothing personal. I called it the Dred Scott of war powers. Decisions. Yeah, we're getting better than that. Mm-hmm. Right? Now we're at twenty and thir- twenty or thirty of the worst decisions. <laughs> so you know, progress is made. <laughs> well, progress has been made because it was uh, the day of that conference. Well. No, I'm trying to remember exactly what the date was, but uh, uh, Hamdan produced the Military Commissions Act, which is a congressional interpretation of the United States treaty obligations that supersedes any interpretation to the contrary, grants the president all the authority he needs, and assuming that Hamdan were a correct interpretation of the Constitution, renders it essentially harmless. Uh, so the short of it is uh, uh, Al-Qaeda is not entitled to protection of the Geneva Conventions. The administration's interpretation of the Geneva Conventions is and always has been the correct interpretation of the Geneva Conventions. And the only people that have ever disagreed were five members of the Supreme Court who were overwhelmingly slapped down by Congress. I just want to make one point about this. I think, Mike, you're right to say that Congress fixed a lot of what you saw as the problems. And that's the whole point of the Hamdan case. It's not about military commissions or the Geneva Conventions. It's about process. It's about which way do we want to go about fighting this war on terror. And for me, the American exceptionalist view is the way that our founders laid down, which is Congress setting those rules. And for people who say the sky is going to fall and we will be hamstrung and so on, if this detainee wins this case and that, Hamdan proves them wrong for exactly the reason you're saying, which is we have a process. We actually have a Congress that works pretty well when the president engages it to fight the war on terror. It worked here and it should work in the future. That's the default rule. That should be the path not these kind of extravagant notions of commander-in-chief override and the like. You, and you, would, I, be, you yeah. would be right, just one thing. You would be right if that was the last of it, but we're about to lose MCA in the Boumediene case. And if we have ever-shifting, ever-different judicial articulations about why everything that both political branches working there cannot do, that, to put it mildly, is not a good thing. And that's what we're about to have. I just I, I want to pick up on, on a, a point that that Michael made in his opening, which I think is is very important here. And I'm going to try to speak for our absent panel member, uh, Jack Goldsmith, based on his book and Senate testimony, which I've read. Uh, and that is even if we assume for the sake of argument that you're correct, that international law is not law, it's just politics, uh, even if we assume that constitutional norms aren't at stake here, it's just domestic politics. Jack's point, as somebody who has a very strong view of the presidency, who probably, I'm sure he's a, a lifelong member of the Federalist Society and, and agrees with all of you. Um, <laughs> his, now, his view is that all of these things that we have been criticizing, Guantanamo and military commissions and national, domestic uh, spying by the NSA and so forth, are bad politics, are bad policy are undermining the presidency, and that's really ironic if what you want is a strong presidency, that they're having negative effects, are undermining the war on terror. So even if we engage in just a pure policy debate, I think you are really uh, undermining or are understating the enormous harm to America's interests here and around the world. Let's go to the next question. Thanks. Uh, Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute. Hard cases uh, make for bad law, and given the hardness, the difficulty of the cases winding through the courts, 
in the post 9-11 national security arena and the uh, the dilatory, indeed deleterious effect that some of these cases might have on uh, criminal law jurisprudence in our normal run of the mill uh, civilian criminal law cases, uh, along with the increasing tensions that uh, David Rifkin's pointed out and the strains on our court system. What do uh, what do you on the panel think of, of the idea that's been floated to create uh, a separate set of courts dealing purely with national security and terrorism? Sure. Uh, uh, well, Jack Goldsmith and I wrote a piece in The New York Times basically advocating the role of um, uh, a foreign national security court. Uh, and by the way, I, I experienced what I know many of you complained about the New York, complained about the bias of The New York Times. I experienced it firsthand because uh, there were four letters basically accusing me of signing on to Korematsu. And then the one person, one letter they printed in favor of the system was by Steve Calabresi, who they found, who they credited as the founder of the Federalist Society, which um, really helped with my uh, colleagues. Um, so, um, uh, so here's the case I think for it. Now, uh, I think that um, uh, you know I was National Security Advisor at the Justice Department in the last administration. I wanted to go after certain people, um, some people who were really bad uh, abroad. And it was a very difficult thing to build a prosecution against them that would stand up in a criminal court applying ordinary criminal rules. That experience uh, has stuck with me. And I do think uh, that we are in a different era after September 11th. I do think some special rules are required. Um, I want those rules to be laid down by Congress. I don't want them to be done by, by executive edict. Um, but I do think that it's time to start thinking about an alternative system. Now, I don't think that's true in every case. I think David vastly overstates it when he says, for example, the vast majority of people can't be prosecuted in this because of the exclusionary rule. Come on, the exclusionary rule doesn't apply after the Supreme Court's Verdugo decision in 1990 uh, to anyone captured abroad. So I'm not worried about Fourth Amendment issues. I may be worried a little bit about chain of custody, maybe not as much as he is, because uh, I do think, I look at courts martial for example, we've had 500 on the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and they've done pretty well. So uh, I do think we have an existing system that works very well, and I agree with Nadine that where you can, you use that system. I just think that there is going to be some set of cases in which you shouldn't, and then the question is, can we have some sort of administrative detention system long term, something that with robust procedures uh, and that applies equally to foreigners and uh, citizens that I think does our nation proud. And I do think that's possible to do. And Jack and I are working on such a proposal I'll just now. Just say one thing briefly. Let the record show it. At least I'm to the left of Neil on one issue. I have no problem of creating a specialized court. Congress can re, you know, recast the entire federal judiciary. But it wouldn't alter anything. There are certain constitutional fundamentals that have to apply in any trial in an Article Free court. And those constitutional fundamentals, in my opinion, including the fact that, that you cannot indeed remove defendants, uh, and despite SEPA and various other things, the person involved has to know what are the core facts that go to his or her innocence. You cannot, by the way, close the courtroom to the public. I am defending it's a species of constitutional right, whether you find it in the First Amendment, as some folks have argued, or that's a species of defendant's due process. You, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how a specialized court, it would be nice to have a specialized bench, cannot successfully prosecute people captured overseas here. And incidentally, well, I don't know if you would bet, take a bet with me, Neil, that if people are being tried here, as the anti-Guantanamo folks want, that the exclusionary rule 
would not apply because the locus of a prosecution is on American soil, irrespective of being captured. I can envision a very different result, but I'll be willing to entertain a small bet that being a problem. Sounds good to me. Uh, I disagree strongly with the Goldsmith-Catgell proposal and vehemently with Steve Calabresi's endorsement of it. <laughs> um, anyone who thinks that having any form of civilian criminal justice system be an effective way of conducting these sorts of prosecutions was not paying attention to the Masawi trial. Um, more fundamentally, I... I I think it rests on a category mistake and actually indulges a category mistake. I think it is misleading to use the term military commission trials as if to imply that what military commissions do is impose the procedures of courts of law. I think that sort of rhetoric leads to the assumption that, you know, you have these sort of baby, unauthorized, you know, junior varsity uh, special types of courts that are applying some sort of subform of justice. I think the true category for military commissions is that they are an application of military force and military leniency. They are a subcategory of the president's power to wage and conduct war that has always been recognized as falling within the scope of the commander-in-chief power. The precise form in which that power is exercised is something that resembles, very strongly resembles, a trial in order not to produce results that would be untoward. But I think it is a basic mistake to think of these in terms of being the equivalent of criminal proceedings, and I think heading down that route uh, would be a big mistake. I I think it's ironic that um, our civilian court system are being dismissed as not being effective in dealing even with hard cases. Um, I think that's really an insult to our courts, and it's ironic to criticize them when the current Justice Department is bragging about the number of successful prosecutions uh, and putting away for life terrorists and therefore, they say, protecting us against terrorist acts. I don't think the Masawi case was a typical case at all in that respect. And, you know, are we going to trash the usual uh, criminal justice system because we don't like the way the O.J. Simpson case, to take an example, was handled? You know, bad cases make, make bad law and certainly should not overturn existing systems. I just wanted to um, and Neil, I think you're disagreeing with your boss. You worked in, under Janet Reno, right? Interestingly enough, she's one of the former law enforcement, uh, top law enforcement officials from uh, both Republican and Democratic administrations that have been signing briefs saying we don't need an alternative legal system. There's going to be a, um, some, there's a symposium coming out in the George Washington Law Review that brought together um, a number of top uh, terrorist uh, prosecutors and judges and um, the article I have is for somebody who was an FBI undercover agent who actually infiltrated terrorist cells and is very enthusiastic about being able, using SEPA and other special procedures to work in our existing criminal justice system to prevent future terrorist acts and, and prosecute uh, those involved. 
Two quick sentences in response to Mike. Number one, the theory of Jack and I's piece is that it is a military system. We, we, we want to say that it is not the civilian uh, criminal justice system. We want to create an alternative to it. To, and two, with respect to Massawi, forget about power and constitution for a sec. Just think about policy. Massawi is rotting away right now in some anonymous federal jail in Colorado. He's not a martyr. He's not a hero. That's a great result. That's the system working. The folks at Guantanamo, by contrast, are recruiting tools for jihadis. So there's something really magnificent about the way, and I understand it was an unseemly trial, but the ultimate story, the end of it, is one that's good and one that we should be encouraging, regardless of our views on Article 2 and you know what the president's outer limits of his power are. Let's thank our panel thank for a very interesting <laughs>